how do you organize the university and the 21st century in ways that don't just nod um, and congratulate interdisciplinary, but actually integrate it into the very structure of the institution. Timescales, Thinking Across Ecological Temporalities, is a book that examines the human inability to see and to witness time as an element of environmental catastrophe. The volume brings together humanities, scholars, scientists, and artists to develop new ways of thinking about the world with its human and non-human entanglements and diverse systems of knowledge. Carolyn Fornoff is Assistant Professor of Latin American Culture at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and is co-editor, along with Bethany Wigan and Patricia Kim, of Timescales. Fornoff is joined here by three volume contributors, Jen Teleska, Assistant Professor of Environmental Justice in the Department of Social Science and Cultural Studies at Pratt Institute and author of Red Gold, The Managed Extinction of the Giant Bluefin Tuna, Chi Dimmick, Editor of PMLA, who teaches at Yale University and whose latest book is Weak Planet, Literature and Assisted Survival, and Charles Tung, Professor of English at Seattle University, author of Modernism and Time Machines. This conversation was recorded in December 2020. Great. Hi, this is Carolyn Fornoff, uh, one of the co-editors of Timescales. I'm located at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign in the Spanish department where I work on contemporary Latin America. So one of the big questions that we were hoping to grapple with in this volume was the question of how time has seemed to shift in the Anthropocene and the way in which phenomena like climate change have made it impossible to think about planetary history and human history as separate things. We open the volume with the example of sea ice melt, which I think shows this temporal collision. These ice caps were formed over 34 million years ago, and now they're melting incredibly quickly. So this year, the Arctic sea ice shrank much earlier than any previous year due to a Siberian heat wave. And of course, this melt also has um, implications for the far-off future with scientists predicting sea level rise of 2.5 meters, which would be enough to displace entire cities. So I think this example sort of shows us this simultaneity of deep geological time and future speculations. The enormity of these temporal scales can be kind of difficult to wrap our heads around. So I wanted to sort of kick off our conversation by passing the baton to Charles Tung, who is a professor of English at Seattle University, and just last year published a monograph titled Modernism and Time Machines with Edinburgh University Press. So Charles, I'm wondering if you'd like to um, tell us a little bit about your chapter and the modernist aesthetic techniques that you discuss there and the way they help us toggle between past, present, and future. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. And I'm so excited to be a part of Carolyn Fornoff's, uh, Bethany Wiggins, and Patricia Kim's volume. It's very exciting, and I'm really happy to be here also with um, Jen Teleska and Waichi Dimmock in conversation. So Charles Tung here. I'm coming to you from Seattle University, and um, I'm very interested in clocks and time machines. My piece for the volume, uh, the title of which is Time Machines and Time-Lapse Aesthetics in Anthropocenic Modernism, thinks about eco-cinema and 
uh, the time-lapse shots of melting ice or uh, the rhythms of cities, and, and thinks about the way in which these views of time elapsing on a much bigger scale is born in literature at the end of the 19th century with this, this new trope um, of the time machine. For me, time machines um, help us to, to reflect not only on the stories that we think in and think through, the different tropes and metaphors that, that we think in, um, but also the concepts and the forms of perception that, that we need to think in and through, especially when it comes to massive um, objects like climate change. One of the sort of standard truisms now is that we can sense and feel the, the weather, but we can't really perceive climate change because it's happening on uh, such a massive scale. So time machines for me, you know, uh, allow us to practice a kind of hyperopia, a farsightedness. Um, they allow us to to zoom out and, and to scale up um, in order to see larger time scales. For me, one of the key things about time machines is that what comes in and out of view is, is really a function of relative rates. And H.G. Wells, when he describes the time machine, uses the example of a bullet or bicycle spokes in relation to how an eyeball sees. And, and we can really think about that um, in relation to, say, a high-speed camera or, or to the technique of, of time-lapse photography. Um, and what we're really tapping into when we um, think about time machines and think about time lapse, especially in the ecological context, is not that we're grasping some ultimate, grand, unified, and singular time, planetary time, but that we're really getting a view of the multiplicity of, of different times and their relation uh, to, to each other. I think really that that idea of the multiplicity of time versus linear time really brings us to a provocative concept that's put forth in Jennifer Teleska's chapter, which she calls technocratic time. And um, Jen is a, an assistant professor of environmental justice at the Pratt Institute. And this year she published Red Gold, the Managed Extinction of the Giant Bluefin Tuna with the University of Minnesota Press. Jen, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your experience um, observing ICAT, the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas, and how it brought you to understand how time is produced by bureaucratic governance. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm really delighted to participate in this conversation with Charles and Wai Chi and, and with you, and, and grateful for the platform that uh, Minnesota has given us to work through these ideas. So I should probably start by saying I spent uh, about three years traveling through this network that Carolyn just mentioned, ICAT. This is the leading institution for governing fish on the high seas. I think in many ways, what this volume allowed me to do is to think more deeply about something that I think many of us take for granted, which is how are we you know, in this modern capitalist consumer culture indebted, uh, feeling the legacy of um, colonialism and such, experiencing time. I start in the chapter with the premise drawn from anthropological inquiry that suggests that people don't just inhabit time, 
but that they make the time they inhabit. Right, so I'll say that again because it, you know, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around it maybe at first, which is, again, people don't simply inhabit time, but they make the time that they inhabit. And when I think of this idea in the context of the fieldwork that I conducted, I then am provoked to ask the question, how did the technocrats in this institution make the time now known as the Anthropocene's Great Acceleration? Right, so this is the period after World War II, um, around 1950 or so, when we see various indices just literally skyrocket. So this is the hockey stick metaphor that people use to describe the escalation in fish capture, but also ocean acidification, and in other registers too, like tourism and various forms of pollution and such that have, have marked um, the signature in the stratigraphy of the planet. And I think it's really by no coincidence that ocean governance, and in particular the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, first emerges in 1958 at the same time as the Great Acceleration. And so I'm operating along the presumption that these meanings of time do not exist apart from the logics of power and accountability. So to more directly answer your question, Carolyn, so I think really what I observed ethnographically was the way in which the technocrats that I encountered adopted this understanding of time that had um, the following characteristics, right? So as you mentioned, it's linear, it's ahistorical, it's unidirectional, it progresses forward, and it's keen to project a future that by definition has not yet happened. Right. And so as the legal anthropologist Carol Greenhouse states, right, this is time with a purpose. And in this case, given the extraordinary stakes of the economies around uh, commercial fish, time here is money. What the chapter really does then is ask, how do the technocrats realize this conception of time? And I look at the dominant mode of you know, what this institution does, which is it produces models and metrics and tables and statistical indices and the like. And these become the mechanisms by which the linear becomes operationalized and which in retrospect, collectively, we've come to experience as the great acceleration. And really the key here too, is that the greatest mechanism of all is this mathematical formula emerging uh, in the 1950s called maximum sustainable yield, which has become so commonplace in fisheries management that it's not questioned at all by the people inside these kinds of zones. And um, But I think it's super interesting, actually, that in the edited volume, you all paired my chapter with Charles's chapter, especially knowing what he just expressed, which is this idea that the time machine, the time lapse gets us a, a view of the multiplicity of different times in relation to one another. And this is very much what I observed when I was in the field. Beginning um, in 2011, the technocrats uh, at this institution, again, the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas, adopted what they called the Kobe matrix, which allows them to graphically image manifold futures in linear time. And in speaking with colleagues of mine that do social histories of finance, I was always really struck by the fact that there is something very similar going on to the way in which the Kobe matrix spoke 
to the way in which traders on Wall Street swap currency, for example, also by using these probabilistic models as a way to profit off of volatility and speculate in the market. Thanks, Jen. Yeah, I mean, I think that that idea of speculation brings us to to the next chapter that I'd like to discuss, which is my Chidimix chapter, which reflects on extinction. And, you know, Jen, listening to you to you talk makes me think about how ICAT is essentially sort of the managed extinction, or as you put it in your, your very title of your book, right, the managed extinction of the giant bluefin tuna. In Y. Chi Dimmick's chapter, um, she focuses on the threat of extinction to amphibians, which she describes as sort of the canary in the coal mine of thinking about this sixth extinction that's underway. And uh, Y. Chi contrasts this with a passage by Thoreau in the 19th century that describes listening to, to frogs and, and this idea that 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 chorus can be endlessly repeatable, right? And and so it's sort of this this rupture of this idea of futurity that's broken by by extinction. I'd like to just introduce Wai Chi, who is a William Lampson Professor of English and American Studies at Yale. And this year, she also published a book titled Weak Planet, Literature and Assisted Survival with the University of Chicago Press. So why do you, do you want to walk us through how extinction shapes our understanding of the future and also how you bring that into conversation with indigenous approaches to time? Yes, thank you so much, uh, Carolyn. And I'm just thrilled to be part of the collection and you know to be here um, in conversation with Charles and Jen. I'm especially happy because when I was writing my chapter, you know, I mean, I talked about uh, the frog and and the extinction of amphibians uh, at the present moment, um, and thinking back to the 19th century. And then I also talked about the rhetoric of extinction being used in the 19th century towards humans, uh, especially uh, Native Americans. And so, you know, in fact, it's very much, just to use Jen's phrase, it was very much a case of managed extinction. Um, These people are supposed to die out. You know, they're already dying out. And even though Thoreau did not, always subscribe to this kind of rhetoric. He did, you know, once in a while. Uh, So it's very, even though he was showing Native Americans in a very different light um, in some moments, he also showed them as close to extinction or already extinct. So I ended my chapter by talking about how not extinct, in fact, Native Americans are. And I talk about the Standing Rock uh, Sioux Tribe and the resistance to the uh, Dakota uh, Access Pipeline. So it, it, I ended with, with that very vibrant sound of protest. Uh, and because the focus is on the pipeline in the essay, I don't really get to talk much about literature. So what i like to talk about today, i like to talk about the salmon and um, how Native Americans think of time in relation to the salmon. So I like to read a poem to you by Jack Skotok. Um, the poem is called Salmon. He caught ten. He counted them again. He gutted and stripped, leaving the bones, then carefully returned the bones to the great river. The salmon would come again the following year, and he would be there waiting. Just to return to the idea of managed extinction, that is uh, 
really behind the notion of maximum sustainable yield as calculated by the technocrats. Indigenous peoples are not using this at all when they think about time, and time is not linear for them, nor is it a future that is always moving progressively towards greater technology and greater benefit for all. In, in, in fact, time is really is both a future that is shared between humans and non-humans. Uh, the salmon will come back next year and the following year, and every year after that, and the very restrained fishermen who catches only 10 uh, fish would be there as well every year. And this is the future that would be shared between humans and non-humans. And it's also a restoration of the past. So, you know, there's really this con continuity between past and present. It's because there's this continuity between past and future that time could be a sustainable habitat for both native peoples and the salmon. So it just seems a really powerful response uh, to the kind of linear credit time that is at the expense of the tuna. And, you know, it's also at the expense of, of native peoples and humans in general. So there's a, there's a little backstory to this poem. And I didn't realize that when I was just reading the poem. But I did a re little research uh, on Jack Skoltok, uh, who's actually Irish. And he, this poem was published in a collection called Black 47 Native American Poetry. And it's dedicated to the Choctaw Nation. So the backstory here is that there's a special friendship between the Choctaws and the Irish. Uh, this is where the 19th century comes in. In 1847, during the potato famine, the Choctaws, even though they were hardly affluent, they nonetheless came up with $170 that they sent to the Irish for famine relief uh, during the potato famine. And from that 19th century gift, uh, came a friendship that lasts all the way to the 21st century. So back in March or, or, or April, there was a story in The Guardian about a gift that the Irish sent to the Choctaw Nation for COVID-19 relief. So this is a very tangible instance of a past that is carried forward into the present and into the future because you know, as far as we can see, you know, this friendship is just going to go on. Um, you know, anytime there's a misfortune, a catastrophe on one side, there's going to be help from the other side. It's a very different way of thinking about the ocean, the Atlantic. It's not just an ocean where you fish, you know, where you basically you can uh, monetize the yield of the ocean. Instead, the ocean is, is really a place that brings people from different continents together. It, it also brings to mind, because the salmon is, is also a Pacific Ocean, I mean, it's both Atlantic and Pacific, it highlights the extent to which the ocean is and should be uh, a way of connecting all the continents of the world. So, you know, I'll just end with um, a little discussion of the importance uh, of the salmon to the Pacific Northwest, uh, especially to the Arctic, just to go back to Carolyn's earlier point. 
uh, about how important it is to think about the, the Arctic because uh, it is the canary um, in the coal mine uh, because it's warming much faster than the, the rest of the planet. But the, the, the salmon is important to the Atlantic uh, as well for one special reason in that it has a symbiotic relation with the, the Tongass forest. Thinking of a book by Amy uh, Gulick uh, called Salmon in the Trees, and her argument is that in fact the 50% of the nitrogen that is so important uh, as nutrients for the for the forest there for the um, temperate rainforest, uh, the Tongass National Forest is near the Arctic. I mean, as you guys all know, uh, it but but it gets its nitrogen from the salmon. So this is another way in which where the ocean becomes a way to think about the interconnection between land and sea. The, the salmon comes from the ocean and it ends up being uh, a kind of bearer of nutrient for the land. Uh, and it's really a kind of land-sea ecosystem uh, that is so vibrant because everything is interconnected. I would love to jump in at this moment, um, if it's all right with everyone, uh, and pick up on the complex relationship with the non-human that human histories have. Um, and I'm thinking a lot too about Wai Chi's chapter in the book in which she talks about the ways in which thinking about uh, the presence of, of animal life and their sounds and the absence of those sounds allows us to think about different pathways uh, toward the future or toward futures um, in the plural I have a friend who has said to me uh, several times, don't give up uh, on a better past. And that makes me think about the relationship to the past um, of the present and um, the different futures that seem to be barreling down toward us um, at a variety uh, of different rates. Mark Rifkin, I think three years ago, published a book called Beyond Settler Time, Temporal sovereignty and indigenous um, self-determination. And um, in that book, he talks about how we are trying to revise uh, how we understand history uh, and the present. And and we try to be more inclusive and offer temporal recognition. But but in a sense, the underlying assumption um, that there's one time to recognize others and to bring them into uh, really kind of upholds um, the settler colonial fantasy of some kind of neutral, unified history and, and ubiquitous modernity and, and so upholds the idea that there's a single, sing, this is a quote from, from his book, a singular temporal formation that itself marks the sole possibility for moving toward the future. In literary studies, you know, one of our, our famous scholars, Frederick Jameson, has provided our discipline with a slogan um, that so many of us uh, believe in, including me, which is to always historicize. And, and one of the things that we're thinking about now, though, is that there, there are different pasts and there are different histories and, and that that gesture, that critical gesture, always historicize in light of what Mark Rifkin's arguments are in his book, that that gesture to always historicize has never really been neutral um, because it presumes, uh, you know, these the, these European coordinates of, of social life, sociality, governance, landedness um, as the basis 
to register processes of becoming. These are these are phrases from Rifkin, and that really reminds me of this this famous incident where Edward Curtis, you know, the famous photographer, ethnological photographer, who's really uh, well known for his documentation of indigenous peoples earlier in the 20th century. 19, end of the 19th too, uh, for, and, and for constructing this mythology of the American West. He, he had this f- photograph in 1910 called uh, In a Piegan Lodge, an image of two indigenous uh, men, Little Plume and, and Yellow Kidney, and between them is a clock. And uh, very famously, he decides to take his original glass negative and to erase the clock um, in the photogravure process, we would call this today photoshopping the clock out of the picture. And, and it seems, you know, scholars read this move um, as Curtis's uh, attempt to create a, a historically seamless moment of, quote unquote, the Indian, um, a, a seamless moment of the pre-modern. And what that does is it simultaneously affirms the existence of this, you know, big clock of civilization that operates elsewhere. Uh, it sort of preserves this this idea of a monochronic national time uh, of the U.S. and of world history and even human history, uh, from which um, indigenous peoples uh, for so long were excluded, but. The move now is not to simply bring others into the one big history, uh, but to acknowledge that there there are, in fact, um, multiple histories. And and I think that really picks up, too, on what Jen was saying um, about the construction of time also to the non-human realm, the technological realm, um, as well as the ways in which that realm is is patched into to policy uh, and economics, um, you know, the kind of conversion of life into a resource for maximization and optimization, um, as opposed to the conceptions of time and life as multiplicity, uh, seemed really striking to me. And, and you know, to, to think about the future, the immediate future, uh, that has this singular, larger but absent vanishing point, um, you know, in what ways is that really different from a conception in which we have a variety of long-term futures that are now reaching into the present from large-scale determinate positions, right? Um, and, and you know, the, the kind of what-if function of fiction uh, in this sense works a little bit like scientific modeling of those various futures that that come to us from different places uh, at different rates um, and and with uh, different outcomes and possibilities as well. I just want to add to Charles' point about how important it is uh, not to have a single unified clock that is assumed to be operative uh, for everyone. And I think that especially in the context of climate change, uh, I think that indigenous peoples have made this argument for some time. I'm, I'm thinking of Kyle White, uh, who argues that, or even the very term Anthropocene, he's quite critical of that term, 
because uh, going on the assumption that this is the first time that humans have had such a profound uh, disruptive effect on the planet that you know we are creating a, a new geological era it, for for native peoples. Um, that really is not the case because it back in the 16th century, 17th century, uh, all the disruptions that we are seeing now, uh, uprooting of inhabitants, pandemic, famine, all those things uh, were happening to native peoples. I mean, you know, it, it accounted for the genocide um, on in the New World. So, um, in in many ways, what we are going through now is is actually um, a fairly mild version of the catastrophe that native peoples went through several centuries ago. And so it's really important to recognize that this is not a single linear history. This goes back obviously to Jen's point that, that linear history is very destructive, um, both on the economic front, but also on the political front and in the understanding of history itself, that it really is very uneven development uh, for people with different fates throughout history. And that this is the moment that is, is really important to learn from indigenous peoples about how they have survived, that you know they assume to have gone extinct, and so many of them actually have refused to be extinct. And how is it that we can refuse to become extinct? Um, this is something that, that has been demonstrated by large populations of indigenous people thinking now of interesting new story um, in, in the context of COVID about how the Cherokee Nation is actually doing much better than the rest of the U.S. Um, there was a, there's a website called STAT, STAT, which is about science and health news. They just they, they recently did a story um, about the Cherokees and how they were testing over and over again for the entire population. So, you know, it's just a very impressive record um, that is far superior to the, 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 the records of the nation and there were epidemiologists um, actually visiting the Cherokee Nation. So this is, you know, something that is happening right now, but I think that in terms of climate change, it's also important to learn from Native practices. I think in, in many ways, part of the struggle uh, and the challenge and, and the, the feeling of being completely overwhelmed, actually, especially when I'm in in the field, is how radically opposed the vast majority of technocrats are to incorporating the non-human as a being in the world and further to incorporating indigenous worldviews. And, and it's, it's beyond frustrating. So I can say in my previous project, there was absolutely no space for either. And uh, just to share with you too, in my current research project, I'm following the development of this next iteration of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So its acronym is BBNJ, Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction. And there's this ongoing discussion in the negotiations about whether or not to include indigenous knowledge alongside, quote, science. And it's the, the diplomats and the technocrats and the scientists and all those who are participating in these negotiations find extraordinary discomfort because indigenous worldviews don't conform to the neat categories and logics that otherwise define 
policy making on the international scale, or even the domestic scale for that matter. So for example, there's an effort quite active amongst the Pacific Island nations in order to include indigenous knowledge, uh, or actually what they call, they don't even call it indigenous, it's, it's traditional knowledge. And it's just very striking to see the way in which decision makers themselves are deeply struggling with figuring out how to translate traditional knowledge into policy in ways that could be scaled that might be able to actually institute meaningful change, you know, if not on the uh, ecological level, you know, certainly on the, on the diplomatic level. I was struck by the, one of the opening chapters of the volume uh, in which the co-authored piece embraces this idea of, you know, so to what extent do we just need to be pessimistic? Uh, and I, I struggle with this in my teaching. I struggle with this in how to communicate to young people the reality of what's going on on the ground without them feeling overwhelmed to the point where they uh, feel paralyzed by the enormity of, of what's going on. And so, you know, I, I just suggest then too that I think in many ways part of the contribution to of, of the volume is by thinking through, you know, if we think back on, you know, David Harvey's time-space compression, it seems to me there's been a lot written. I mean, there's the entire field of geography that's thinking about space, but we're not adequately thinking about time. I'm just thankful, again, to have thought through what time means, especially in a, in a policymaking world where these kinds of categories are, they're just not at the forefront of what the technocrats and diplomats and the scientists are, are even thinking. Yeah, I think too, this is Carolyn again, uh, just to jump in off what Jen is saying. I mean, we really see these tensions playing out in, in Latin America today, where a lot of governments are, are interested and invested in bringing indigenous cosmologies and knowledge systems into the constitution. And yet there seems to be sort of this, this bind where the only possible model of quote unquote development or, you know, the, the national growth, national wealth um, offered in capitalism is, is the extractivist model. And so we can really see this play out um, temporally where there's this idea that, well, we need to extract as much as possible, as fast as possible before we run out of these resources at the same time that there is an effort uh, by leftist governments who are promoting those policies to also sort of grapple with indigenous worldviews. I share sort of that feeling of pessimism of like what is kind of the way out of this bind. And I think that's where I'm really glad that we included so many artists in this volume. And I want to draw or just mention the the concluding artist that we include. Um, the last chapter is by Beatriz Cortez. Uh, she's a Salvadoran uh, sculptor who is based in Los Angeles, where um, she migrated uh, during El Salvador's civil war in the 80s. And um, Cortes has uh, these really fabulous speculative works. Um, she makes time machines, space capsules that draw from and incorporate indigenous construction techniques, like using uh, stones or adobe. 
And I think one of the things that I find most powerful about her work is that she mentions that we often think of indigenous peoples as being part of our past, you know, essential to to the creation of of our past. And yet we, uh, when we speculate into the far off future, you know, that that indigenous presence, uh, indigenous knowledges are not as incorporated in, into these idea of of our futures. And so I, I find her work really generative in terms of its utopian speculation of of these futures that can be shaped and molded through um, indigenous knowledges and technologies. I really agree with that. Uh, I, I think um, it's so important to think of in, indigenous cultures and indigenous knowledge, um, not as a relic from the past, but as a lifeline to the future. And, and actually, I mean, I think that in, in thinking about Latin America, um, it, 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 it varies quite a bit from, from one country to another, right? So in Brazil, obviously, the Amazon rainforest is is under assault. But I, I think in I think it's in Colombia, I'm pretty sure about this. The the Colombia constitution actually in a in a landmark decision ruled that just as they previously ruled on one river as a rice bearer, uh, the a more recent ruling, uh, and this is a, a lawsuit brought by young people that is one of the rights for for these, you know, people aged from 16 to to whatever 28 um, that they have a right to the future and by virtue of the right of the right of these humans that the the Amazon rainforest also should be a rights bearer as well that uh, the forest has rights that the national government should honor and that government agencies should be charged with protecting the rights of the forest as they would protect the rights of corporations for instance in the, in the US. I don't think it's common knowledge in this country uh, that the Colombian constitution did have this this landmark ruling. There's a difference between how technocrats and bureaucrats and scientists think about the ocean, and especially in thinking about a very uh, profitable com- commodity like tuna, and how forests uh, conceptualize. I mean, sure, you know, they are very profitable. Um, to miners and, and ranchers, um, and so those are the people who are backing Bolsonaro's uh, reactionary policies in Brazil. But I, but I think that they really there are other scientists who are much more um, on the side of indigenous knowledge. Um, so when the fires were last year during the Amazon fires, so Naomi Klein uh, wrote an article uh, about how if indigenous rights had been honored, there would have been no such fire. And so that got some attention, but um, then Scientific American actually um, did an article about saying the same thing. They didn't refer to Naomi Klein, but they did make exactly the same argument that indigenous people should be the guardians of the forest. Um, And what is really interesting is that this year, with the wildfires burning in the American West, there actually are a significant number of scientists uh, saying that indigenous fire management practices uh, should be studied because in, in native peoples actually practice controlled burns. Um, they, they think that part of the problem is that uh, fires have been seen only as destructive as opposed to uh, ecologically constructive. 
So they, they practice controlled burns that would um, actually prevent large-scale uncontrolled burns that such as we saw uh, this year. So um, I think that that might be a more might be one avenue in which we can highlight the importance uh, because it's so clear that that non-native practices are not working, right? I mean, you know, the, the fires are just going to get worse and worse. Um, so there's something that we're not getting. And I think that most people see that Western technology and Western, Western knowledge is, is, is not adequate. So this might be a moment to look at some other practices. And I think that indigenous knowledge actually is a very, is a good candidate um, in, in this particular context. If I can just um, pick up on what Wai Chi was uh, just saying and also what Jen was saying, um, Wai Chi mentioned uh, a scholar named Kyle White, um, and what she was saying reminded me of an essay he wrote, the title of which is Indigenous Science Fiction for the Anthropocene, and Kyle White places the word fiction in parentheses uh, in order to, I think, highlight the opposition of science with a capital S uh, that Jen was talking about with indigenous uh, epistemologies or knowledges as, as if they uh, are a different type of, of knowledge. And in that essay, he, he's very clear uh, about his uh, problem with the term Anthropocene, um, as Wai Chi was uh, remarking. And I can't quote it verbatim, but it's something like, for some peoples, the end of the world, uh, the apocalypse, um, the destruction of one's universe has already happened um, and, in fact, is continuing to happen. That, for me, was a, a really important uh, insight to think about the, the fact that the past is not past. The past is not dead. Riff on Faulkner's famous line about the past that... And, and it made me also think about um, Simon Lewis's and Mark Maslin's book, uh, The Human Planet, where they, they actually date the beginning of the Anthropocene to 1610 and sort of get us to think about the Anthropocene not as a phenomenon of some universal human, but sort of really ground these processes that are ongoing in a much more specific historical context. So 1610 is the year where scientists can see a dip um, in atmospheric carbon in, in geological sediments. Um, it's it's the, the year of the so-called Orbis spike, which, you know, Lewis and Maslin explain is the, the moment of colonization and slavery, um, the beginning of, of those processes, uh, the so-called Columbian exchange, um, where things that are being taken and things that are being transferred or given, uh, like smallpox, for instance, um, leads to the deaths of more than 50 million people in just a very short time frame, which accounts for this drop um, in carbon dioxide. And so, you know, thinking about the ways in which um, the past uh, continues on um, over these longer arcs, these very long trajectories, uh, really turns modernity and uh, the technocratic time that Jen was talking about um, into things that 
are, are going to last for much longer than we bargained for. I wonder too, to what extent if at a certain level, I absolutely, I, I think it's quite evident that there's a, a need to not only rediscover for those of us in uh, that come from non-Indigenous spaces, you know, and, and elevate Indigenous knowledge. But I also wonder to what extent, uh, you know, Carolyn, you had all had mentioned in the introduction, the work by Stengers and on uh, slow science. And, you know, when I, I read that text, actually, just before I finished the conclusion of the book, of my book, it was a provocative read on a couple of levels. And I think in some ways, what I heard her saying is the way in which deconstruction itself is not an endpoint, right? That we have to push through it in order to deliver another way of inhabiting this world. And what I hear her saying too is that it also requires of us in the academy to inhabit a disposition with a sense of humility where we can be transformed by what we learn where we can um, admit that we may not know something, where we can admit that what we think we know might be misguided. And so I wonder too, what would happen if we turned the lens um, also on, on us as, um, at least for my own self, as a non-Indigenous person, to figure out ways operating within the space I know in the academy of how might we resist or at least not institutionally support these other knowledges that otherwise have been, I think what she has rightly said, have been proven um, to be destructive. I think maybe one way, you know, we could try to begin to do that, both to acknowledge our lack of knowledge, um, but also to bring other perspectives especially indigenous perspectives um, into what we do is it's just to include, you know, a couple of indigenous texts in the course that is not, that is not directly on, you know, indigenous history or, or culture. I think it's quite helpful to bring in writers who are indebted to indigenous knowledge, uh, you know, so this, an Irish poet, you know, who, inherited uh, friendship with the Choctaw, or in the case of Gary Snyder, uh, somebody who's deeply mindful of Indigenous history. Uh, so it's just bringing back, reminding us there's a word that is of longer history. So, I mean, I think that it's really important not to ghettoize uh, Indigenous uh, literature or Indigenous history, but just to make that a kind of integral part of whatever we're doing, I think that that might be one way just to educate ourselves and also to educate students that indigenous history, cultures, and so on, are not as, they're not a specialized area, really central to our understanding of the world now. You know, listening to you both talk about sort of the the challenges and the pleasures of, of pushing ourselves out beyond our comfort zones or beyond the languages that we're, we're able to read and speak, to learn from others, really makes me think about the similar, you know, challenges and pleasures of interdisciplinary collaboration. Um, and, you know, part of our aim with this volume was was to bring together artists and humanists and social scientists and those from the 
quote unquote, hard sciences to think together about these issues. And, and I'm just curious to hear how interdisciplinarity has informed your work or the challenges that you've found in that space. So I guess you know, I'm trained as an interdisciplinary scholar in both uh, law and media studies. And so for me, the real challenge has always been about how do we communicate our ideas without getting stuck into the jargon of specific disciplines and you know so that we're we're speaking to rather than past one another and i think in some ways if we were to elevate this you know not just within the humanities and social sciences but i think in many ways some of the achievements of the volume is that it's also incorporating oceanography and you know other forms of earth science and you know, it makes me think, you know, of the, what happens at the, you know, at the level of combustion, you know, when you have, you know, if I think of our conversation here to bring in an indigenous worldview, but then at the same time, you know, what would it mean to take seriously what's coming out of oceanography, where, you know, we learn that squid, for example, say hello to each other by flashing light, or that, you know, we know that fish like birds at first light, they sing, they, they, they chatter. And, you know, so, so what would happen if we were able to measure that chatter in a way that might give us a clue as to actually how many of, how many fish there are in a, in a given area. And so in some ways, it seems to me that, you know, some of the challenges is linguistic at the level of communication, but then some of the the, the challenge for, for me in, in my experience as a, as a grad student and now uh, at Pratt is how do you organize the university and the 21st century in ways that don't just nod um, and congratulate interdisciplinary, but actually integrate it into the very structure of the institution. Uh, that to me is a challenge, but also a real opening I mean, a real opening. And I think in many ways, that's part of the, again, the, the achievement of the volume. So for, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a project that is dealing with COVID, uh, but it also intersects with, I mean, just because everything is happening within this year, it, it also intersects with the racial justice movement and also with the wildfires. So uh, the chapter that I'm working on is called I Can't Breathe 2020. So, you know, I, I think that really it is a way to make myself learn a lot about the respiratory system and also about how interesting and complex the, the symptoms of COVID. I mean, I really am learning a lot. Of, I have to learn a lot of science to write the system, and it's fascinating. And, and I also learn a lot about the ways in which to try to understand COVID is actually, it goes back to climate change. This virus is, is a zoonotic virus, which means it jumps from animals to, to humans. So, you know, uh, this, you probably guys have probably heard that, you know, studying the in bats or something, that that would be the carrier for, for, for the virus to jump to humans um, and that wet market in, in China. But um, zoonotic diseases actually um, develop uh, because so many forests have been destroyed. And... When, when more and more land is used for commercial 
purposes, uh, different species are crowded together into smaller and smaller uh, strips of land. And so uh, it's much easier for viruses to jump from one species to another and eventually to humans. Um, so um, the stopping deforestation is, is actually one of the measures that we could take um, to prevent pandemics. Um, so it's really interesting way in which uh, learning more about the signs of the disease actually has, you know, kind of interesting political consequences, you know, or the kind of political arguments or that I could make. So I think that in that sense, I don't myself all, always see science as, the, as, as a kind of uh, adversary. I, I think there the are many instances. It's, I think especially science understood as public health uh, because, you know, it's scientists who work on public health um, are very aware of the extent to which uh, COVID symptoms are aggravated by air pollution, for instance. So in fact, um, the argument that I'm trying to develop is in fact a good response to COVID is also a response to climate change, uh, but it is an argument that has to, to be made through, you know, just learning more about the, the sciences behind both. I really admire Carolyn, Bethany's, and Patricia's volume um, and their effort to create a space for, for thinking together um, with a variety of disciplines. There are a number of challenges, and I think one of them at the present time is distinguishing between uh, the collaborative and decolonizing work uh, in a more common language, which Jen uh, alluded to, uh, from current administrative restructurings under the banner of interdisciplinarity that really endangers less profitable disciplines. Um, you might even think about uh, a kind of maximum yield approach uh, that's taking place um, in universities themselves. But one of the exciting possibilities for the humanities, um, one of the transformations uh, might be that we take the liberal humanist ideal of, of empathy and different perspectives and, and not negate it so much as learn to scale it. And for me, this scalar empathy uh, would really show the na narrowness of, of current forms of you know, quote unquote relatability, that, that much hated term that reveals the narcissism of what appeals to students and, and to us. Um, and, you know, just for an example, um, efforts already are underway in literary studies and, and other disciplines, it seems to me, to produce uh, geological phenomenologies, you know, like what is it to be a stone or a planetary process? Uh, and as corollaries, new environmental and non-human dimensions of sociology or critical explorations of technology studies and biology, you know, and in the present, how do we fund and support these efforts and thinkers uh, that appear more clearly in the staff directory of, of the university in deep time rather than in our current universities? Well, thank you so much for all of you. It was just um, a real pleasure to talk to you again today uh, after meeting in 2016 for our conference. And, and thank you for your wonderful contributions uh, to the volume. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carolyn. Yeah, and all for, to all of you, it was a real pleasure to, to read each of your contributions. Likewise. Thank you. For more information, visit z.umn.edu forward slash timescales.